0: Well welcome to to new life my name 's ross gilbert we 're thrilled to have you here this morning um, on Easter morning and uh, you know we live in a, in a day and age where we have all kinds of toys and technology and so forth and uh, you know these, the f- smartphones make great tools, but lousy masters. How many people have kind of figured that one out? but I do have to admit, I love the ability to be able to just grab my phone, whip it out to take a picture, the capture of memory of something because so often I'll, I'll experience something, it'll be so powerful and, and great, and I, I'll swear to myself that I'm never going to forget this as long as I live, or five minutes from now, whichever comes first, and chances are I tend to forget, and so it's nice to have the, the, the picture of it, the, the memory of it, and uh, you know, it, it just, I don't seem to have a, a great memory. Sometimes I think I have the memory of Dora the Fish um, from uh, Finding Nemo, so, but um, I do know I'm not alone. I mean, I read through the scriptures, and and I see repeatedly in the Hebrew scriptures something similar happening to, to the people of Israel. the Israelites, they they would have this incredible moment from God and then then kind of forget all about it. So for example, there was the day when when Moses, Moses walks up to the Red Sea leading the the children of Israel behind him. And here comes this man, Moses, who looks a lot like Charlton Heston. He raises up his arms and with holding a staff and the water splits. The children of Israel cross this incredible miracle Two, over 2 million Jews are rescued and saved. And then when the, the attacking army of Pharaoh comes, they get just washed away as the waters come crashing down on them. An incredible miracle. And I bet you they swore that they would never forget it. Except a few weeks later, they're building a golden calf, worshiping it, praising this golden calf that they just had built and giving it the honor and glory for rescuing them from Pharaoh. I mean, it's, it's kind of ridiculous People forget. That's just how it goes. And, and God understood this. And so what God did is he, he implemented within the nation of Israel a way to be reminded of what was, what was happening. He implemented these, these seven feasts uh, by which Israel could be constantly reminded about what God has done and who God is for them. And so this weekend is one of those feasts. Anyone know what, what's being celebrated this weekend? Passover, right? And that was the event that, that Moses had led the children of Israel. They were slaves in Egypt and he led them out after these, these 10 horrific plagues. Uh, the last one being where the, the firstborn of every household that was not uh, trusting in God, that firstborn was was killed as a result of what the Pharaoh had done to the, the children of Israel some 40 years later or 80 years uh, earlier. And so, in fact, it was that very Passover that Jesus and his disciples were were celebrating together at the Last Supper, the night of his arrest. And so this morning, you and I, we're going to do something similar. We're going to take a moment to kind of step back and, and celebrate what God has done. That's what Easter is about for us. It's a, it's a chance to, to pause and, and reflect again on that, that wonderful moment of the cross. And I say it's wonderful not because of what happened on the cross, but rather what God accomplished on that cross. And so we're going to do that. But we're going to look at a, a famous passage written by Paul to the church in Rome in Romans 5, verses 6 to 8. And so you can kind of read along with me on the screen here. Paul writes here, he says, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we, we look into this passage and we we understand more about what you have accomplished and really the heart behind all of that, the love that motivated you uh, to act on that cross some 2,000 years ago, would you give us fresh eyes to see it? That we wouldn't approach it as a, as a truth that we've heard over and over again and just sort of dismiss it, oh, I know that, but Father, would you give us fresh eyes, fresh understanding so that we could just celebrate all that you've done and the love you have for us? In your name we pray. Amen. Well, our passage here begins with the word for, and it's really a, a connecting on. It's a, Paul's been talking earlier in chapter 5 here about what we can celebrate in the fact that we've been united with God, that we've been justified, made right with God. He says there's a number of things that you and I get to celebrate now. Number one, he says we have peace with God. No longer is God and man, are we enemies? No longer are we opposed to one another. Now we have peace. We're on the same team, but maybe even more importantly, we're on the same, we're in the same family with God now. And so we get to celebrate that truth. Not only that, but now we have access to God 24 hours a day, seven days a week, anytime, anywhere, we have access to God. And again, think about what that was like for the Jews. For the Jews, they had limited access to God. They had to go through a mediator, the high priest. And even then, it was only at certain points of the year and only in certain places. You and I have unlimited access to God. Not only that, but now we get to look forward to the coming of God and rejoicing over that. And so there's all kinds of things we get to celebrate. And then in verse 3 of chapter 5, Paul says, we also get to celebrate in our trials and our tribulations. Well, that doesn't seem to make sense. That seems kind of crazy. And it would be, except if you can understand the heart by which Paul is saying we can celebrate these trials. You see, he's saying you and I can celebrate about these trials because we know, we are confident, we are guaranteed that the trials that we're facing are not the punishment of God. It doesn't matter what you've done or who you did it with, God is never going to punish you all of that was taken care of at the cross. And so the trials aren't his punishment. Instead, he's doing something uh, through those trials in our hearts. And we have that knowledge. We have that confidence, he says, because of the love of God. And that's really what Paul wants to talk about here in these three verses. He wants to explain the significance and the power of how much God loves us. So here in verse six, he's, he's going to try to to show us, he basically in verse 6, he gives us the whole answer how much he loves us. And then he's going to explain it in verses 7 and 8. So he begins with the phrase, while we were. While we were, it implies that a change has taken place. That something something was a way, but it's no longer that way. It's now completely different. And we're going to come back to that later, assuming I remember. I told you I got the memory of Dora the fish. So, But he uses these two words here. We use the two words here to describe the state that you and I were in before we met Jesus. The two words used in verse 6 there are helpless and ungodly. Well, what does that mean? Well, the word helpless could be translated as strengthless, as weak, as feeble, even sick. And I think that perfectly describes mankind apart from Jesus. I think we could we get Some insight into that just by looking at the state of our world. I always like to kind of look at how companies market to, to people, how they, how they advertise to others. Because basically what they're doing is they're not, they're not often selling the product. They're trying to sell something else that's connected to the product. I think a great example of that is, is the, the OLG, the Ontario Lottery uh, Gaming Association. When they're trying to sell Lotto 649 tickets and so forth, they don't try to just sell the ticket to you because if they did then it's it's kind of foolish just selling you the ticket because if you think about it they make they make 2.5 billion dollars a year that they give to other charities well where do you think all that money came from that's oh by the way after all the payouts and so forth i heard one guy he spent $50,000 on lotto, lotto tickets and he won $37,000 Bet you he was real excited every time he won a few bucks, right? And then you add it up, and you realize, huh, the house always does win. And and so they're not trying to sell you just buy tickets. What they do is they sell you something else. And what they're selling you essentially is an answer to our soul, an answer to what we're longing for. And in this case, what they're selling us is freedom. Because basically what they're saying is, if you could somehow win the lotto, if you get that million dollar a year prize or whatever it is, win the Powerball, whatever it is that they're offering you, that somehow you'll never have to worry about money again. You'll never have to worry about getting your job and paying your bills and debts and call screening for creditors and so forth. They're selling you freedom. And, and the reason why it's so effective, why people continue to, to go and buy those tickets is because that's what they're looking for. And we're looking for freedom because the reality is every one of us, we were born in bondage. Well, what we what were we born in bondage to? Well, I think, I think we can understand some of that by understanding the means by which we look for freedom. So aside from buying lotto tickets and so forth, I think there are other things that we do, we use trying to find our freedom. One of those things would be anger. And I got a slide up here that's got a lot of words here, but Bear with me on this one. This, this idea here, we use anger. Why, why would we use anger? Well, anger is a means to an end. Anger is a way that which we're trying to exert some power. We're trying to exert some control or gain some sense of control because often we're overcome by our own insecurity. And so I'm going to use my anger to overcome that insecurity. Or maybe I, I indulge too much in the TV or Netflix or social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and so forth because I'm looking for an escape. Why? Because I'm overwhelmed. Why? Because I feel like I'm not enough. I feel like a giant failure and I'm exposed in this situation. So I'm going to run away into the make believe land on the screen and I'll hide there. Or maybe it's all about my appearance. I just gotta I gotta lose some weight and I gotta get stronger, get a little bit bigger muscular wise, or trim down and I get a little slimmer, fit into that dress, get the new haircut and so forth. Gotta look good because deep down I just don't feel like I'm beautiful or accepted. And I'm therefore not worthy of that love. Or we turn to drugs and alcohol and pornography, trying to numb our pain. Again, it's just trying to escape or hide from our shame. Maybe it's infidelity or promiscuity because I feel unloved, and so I'll just look for love anywhere I can get it, despite the cost to me. Or maybe if I just pursue money, get a a, a bigger job, or my company can grow so I can have more money in that bank account, get that bigger house, that nicer vacation, that new boat, because then I will have value and worth to show to people. These are all these these things that we use, these, these methods by which we employ trying to find freedom. But the reality is it doesn't give us freedom. It just makes us bigger slaves. Not not only are we still in bondage to the not feeling good enough and unloved and the shame and the guilt, but now we've become enslaved to the vices that come with them. So we become enslaved to the pornography or the alcohol. We become enslaved to Facebook and Netflix and so forth, and we're just in bondage. Enter Jesus. At the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus, he walked into this temple and, uh, or a synagogue and he was offered or given the opportunity to read from any, any part of scripture. And so I kind of imagine he was, he was looking for something in particular and he's looking over the scrolls and he finds the book of Isaiah and he opens up the scroll to chapter 61 and he quotes here and it's recorded for us in Luke chapter 4 and he quotes, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's come that we would experience freedom. That's his mission statement. And so he he reads this and he goes and he sits down and it says in the scripture that every eye was just transfixed on him. He's, they're in awe that he's read this passage because they all knew that this passage was referring to the promised Messiah. The Messiah they've been waiting for over and over again. And then he says something truly audacious after this. He says, this passage has been fulfilled in your hearing. In effect, what he's saying is, I'm the one that you've been waiting for. I'm the one that's going to be your Messiah. I'm the one that's going to bring the freedom that you so desperately seek out for and look for. But they didn't accept him as the Messiah. Because what's interesting to me is they didn't see him as the answer. They didn't see him as the one they needed. You see, in their thinking, the Messiah, they were expecting some kind of a general some kind of a warrior, someone who's going to lead some kind of an insurrection or rebellion that would drive out the Roman army, drive out the Roman government and reestablish Israel as a nation. And they could go back to their glory days of King David. That's what they were expecting of a Messiah. And the reason is because they didn't understand what their problem was. You see, they thought their problem was circumstantial. They thought the problem was the Romans. They thought the problem was was these people over here. What they didn't understand was they were in bondage themselves. And so the Messiah, the Savior, had to come and rescue them, not from out there. You see, the, the reality is our world today is very similar. The world thinks that if we could just find the right set of circumstances, Maybe it's politically, right? We get the right leader, be it Obama, be it Trump, be it Trudeau or any other political leader out there. If they just bring in the right changes and the right set of government and the right rules, then finally everything will be okay and we'll find that freedom we crave. But the reality is there's no political party, no conservative, no liberal, no NDP, possibly the rhino, but I'm not completely sure on that one. But really there's no political party that can ever Provide the freedom we all seek for. And that's just true on a larger scheme, uh, scheme of things. But it's true even in our homes. It's true at work. The freedom we crave can only come from Jesus Christ. Because he's the only one that can set us free from the sin. From the shame. From the death. From the guilt. From the despair. From the misery. From the emptiness. That a helpless an ungodly world is in bondage to. We're powerless against this. We simply don't have the strength to overcome all this on our own. And it's, it's a bondage that we're born into. So we read about in the book of Genesis where, where you and I, because of Adam's sin, you and I, all of mankind, were plunged into this, this experience. Now, some look at that and say, well, that's not fair. It's not right. I mean, I, I didn't choose that in the garden. How, how is it fair that I'm, I'm born into all this? And my answer really is, you're right. It's not fair. But being fair has nothing to do with it. It's simply reality. Let me illustrate it to you this way. Think about the Titanic, right? That supposedly unsinkable ship. And it's, it's traveling through the Atlantic Ocean until eventually it hits that iceberg. Now, if you're a passenger on that ship, were you responsible for hitting that iceberg? No, you had nothing to do with it, right? I mean, maybe we can blame the person who was supposed to be watching for icebergs. Maybe we blame the captain because of how, you know, his, his arrogance and how quickly he was driving the ship and so forth. I mean, really, the, probably the buck stops with him. So he's responsible. But the reality is everybody's still in the water. The moment that ship sinks, everyone's swimming around, floating in the Atlantic, and it doesn't matter whose fault it is. The reality is you're in the water. Now, imagine a rescue boat comes along and that rescue boat comes and, and, and they come up to the person trying to tread water you know, in the freezing cold of the Atlantic and, and he reaches the hand and says, grab my hand and I'll pull you aboard. We got warm blankets. We got hot coffee here, some food. We're going to look after you. Just grab my hand. And the person treading water looks up and says, well, you know, it's not fair that I'm in the water. It's not fair. And the guy maybe in the boat says, I, I get that. I know it's not fair, but grab my hand. Grab my hand. Let's pull you, assault, pull you into safety. No, I'm not grabbing that because it's not fair. Well, at that point, Who's choosing to be in the water? It had nothing. He didn't make a choice to get into the water, but at that point, now he's choosing to stay in the water. You see, that's what salvation is. We're all passenger on this ship called the USS Adam, I guess. And Adam, because of that choice, hit the iceberg. He ate from the wrong tree. He disobeyed, and he plunged all of us into the water. And yeah, it's not fair. But the question is, the rescue boat's here. It's Jesus. And he's saying, come aboard. Come on, I've got all you need. Everything you're looking for, I will set you free from your struggles, from sin, from shame. I'll be the life you desperately seek out for. All you need to do is grab my hand. And that's the offer he gives to you and I. What's interesting is how difficult it is for many people to actually receive all this. Chuck Swindoll shares this great story. He says this, he said, many years ago, I taught a Bible class, class, which soon grew to more than 70 people. Because so many of them had not heard the gospel and were obviously eager to understand it, I decided to make the good news our focus. So after nine weeks, I thought, let's see how many people are getting the message. So I handed each person a three by five index card and asked them to write a brief explanation of the gospel in no more than a sentence or two. Nothing complicated. And out of approximately 70 students, how many turned in the correct response? Five. At first, I was confused and disillusioned. I can only imagine. How could my teaching have been so ineffective? But then as I continue to work with the class, I discovered the people find it very difficult to connect the dots and to accept the concept of grace. It's humanly illogical, seems even irresponsible to think that anything in life is free because the world is a you only get what you pay for kind of place. We naturally expect salvation to be like that. So before long, we're earning brownie points toward heaven, attending church, feeding the hungry, giving money to worthy causes, memorizing scripture, turning the other cheek, nursing wounded sparrows back to health. Eventually, we arrive at a logical conclusion. All this work is surely getting God's attention. Hopefully, he'll reward me, maybe even let me into heaven one day. But God's economy doesn't work that way. Grace is the currency of heaven. Which What makes grace so utterly absurd concept to this world, grace is free to the receiver and costly to the giver. Grace transfers blessing from the storehouse of the deserving to the need of the unworthy. Grace is given with no expectations, no conditions, no constraints, and no record. So what we need to understand is God's love for you and me in many ways is independent of me. Meaning it, it doesn't come to me because of what, I done, uh, what I've done. I'm not the initiator of that love. God is. It starts with God. It, it, it's from God. It's all about God. It's because God is love that he loves me. And I think that's why we struggle with this truth of, of how much he loves us because we just don't believe we're worthy of this kind of love. And the simple reality of the fact is you're not. You never were, and you never will be. But that's not the point. It's not about trying to earn his love. So, so Paul's going to try to explain this now in verse 7. And he's going to use verse 7 as a, as a way of contrasting and comparing how the world loves so that he can show the, the awesome magnitude of how God loves so in verse seven, Paul writes, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. All right, to, to understand this verse, I think we have to understand how many different kinds of people are in this verse. And, and some have said, well, there's there's two or three or four. But I think if you kind of look at it and you kind of study it, it's really become pretty apparent there's only two people that Paul's talking about in this verse, so the first one is, is the for one, right? That's, that's person number one. For that one will hardly die for a righteous man. That's person number two. Though perhaps for the good man, that's still person number two. Someone, that's person number one, would die for him. So what is he saying here? It's not often that you hear stories, media reports, where people have said, I heard someone needed a heart transplant, so I decided to kill myself to give them my heart. That's not a common occurrence. In fact, as far as I know, that's never happened, right? Normally, when heart transplants happen, it's because someone involuntarily died, and now they've given their heart. And so what Paul's saying is, it's it's so unlikely that someone would die for a righteous person. And then he thinks, you know what? That's not, it's not completely impossible. It's, it is possible. I mean, there, there have been reports. I mean, even today, right? You think about the, the RCMP or the secret service. They, they are a task that if, if a gunshot goes off near the prime minister or the president, what will they do? What will the, the prime minister or the president's uh, security detail, what will they do in, in, in light of hearing the gunshots? They will, they will jump in front of the, that leader. They will protect, even at their own life, protecting that person. And what's, what's incredible about that is they don't even have to like the person. right? Whether they, they're a supporter of President Trump or they're not a supporter of President Trump, they will take a bullet for him because of the office he carries. But they wouldn't do it for just anybody, right? They're not going to do it for some homeless guy on the street, right? The gunshot doesn't go off and they jump in front of the homeless guy. That doesn't happen. You may have heard other reports, maybe in the during World War I or during World War II, for example, when there was like trench warfare going on. And, and maybe someone had kind of launched a grenade from one trench into the other trench, and and all of a sudden, you know, this this grenade is there, and all these buddies or this guy sees all his buddies, and they don't see the grenade, but but he sees it, and his buddies are going to die, and so maybe he would go and he would jump on the grenade to save his buddies, and and there have been reports of that, but again, that's for your buddies, that's for the the people that you're you're fighting alongside with, right? So. the the reality is man might do something that kind of sacrificial, but if he does, it's only for someone really, really special, for someone really, really important, someone that's really, really good. Well, let's apply that now in verse 8, because Paul wants to contrast how man's love, which is really response to someone and what they've done and how they've achieved or, or become worthy of that love, compared to how God loves. See, God's not loving based on the attractiveness of the object. He loves because of who he is. So verse 8 says, but God. Maybe the two greatest words of the English language, but God. Things are headed one direction, but God shows up. And suddenly everything's different now. But God in the NAS and NIV, it translates it as demonstrate, which means displays or or shows as a proof. And so we could we could read it this way. But God demonstrates, displays, shows as a proof of his love towards us. And that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. In many ways, what he's doing is he's putting his his money where his mouth is. He's he's letting his actions show to us how much he loves us, not just with words, but in actual deeds. He didn't just stand on the sidelines. It's while, while you and I were helpless, while we were ungodly, while we were sinners, while we were rotten and could not free ourselves, God comes and he offers as a sacrifice his own life. In essence, what he says is, I would rather die and go to hell than be without you. That's how important you are to me. I, I love you more than I love my own life, Jesus says. And so he willingly goes to the cross. Incredible. Some have struggled at this idea. How could how could somebody demand that kind of a death? And wouldn't that be wrong? And wouldn't that show something about the, the, the evilness of God? And the reality is, only if it wasn't voluntary. The fact that Jesus chose to go there just shows pure love on Jesus' part. And so he goes and he comes and he's a sacrifice for sin. But I have a problem with the word demonstrate. I don't think the word demonstrate really captures the, the truth of what Paul's trying to say here. See, the problem with demonstrates or display is that we can look at the cross as merely a token or a a picture of God's love. It's, It's just basically him doing something as a token display of his love for us. If that's the case, if it was just a token display, then Jesus is just a martyr. And then, therefore, the cross itself didn't accomplish anything. But it did. I think, I think a better word here for demonstrate would be what the King James used, which is to commend. And that's a, it sort of took some time for me to kind of wrap my, my mind around that word commend, but it really means to give over, to give oneself over, to offer. So we could, we could translate it as that God commended, He gave Himself over to the cross. And why why that's so important is because the cross was more than a token display, something dramatic, something incredible, something actually happened on that cross some 2,000 years ago. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. See, we're on that cross, it accomplished something in our hearts. It accomplished something on our behalf, something that you and I could never accomplish on our own the death he paid or the death his death paid for our sins all of them your past sins your future sins the sins you don't want to talk about with anybody all of your sins have already been paid for and you and i are now clean completely you're pure you are, you are right, you are righteous, and all of that is done forever. N- unchanging, perfectly. And again, it's one of those things that is so hard for us to, to really absorb. I mean, I think mentally we say, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, I acknowledge that. But it's a truth that is so hard for us to receive in our hearts sometimes. Because we keep coming back to, yeah, but what about this sin? What about... That action. And God says, I took care of that. I washed that one away. But again, there's more to this verse. See, Paul's not just talking about how Jesus died for you as the substitutionary death for you, meaning that because of your sin, a death was required, but Jesus stepped in and he took that death so you didn't have to pay it. That's true. But Paul's referring to something greater than that. He wasn't just the substitute for the penalty of death. He substituted in our place. See, really, that's what the word for here translates as. It was great in my study, kind of looking this and, and kind of trying to break down these words. I came across his commentator saying that for is more than substitutionary. For is in the place of. Meaning that, that Jesus fought a battle in place of you and I. What I want you to see is he didn't just pay the penalty of death. He took on death. He didn't just pay the penalty of your sin. He took on your sin. He took on shame. He took on guilt. He took on addiction. He took on whatever you and I are in bondage to. And he fought for us in a way that we never could fight. What Paul's trying to get across to you and I is that Jesus, he was our champion. You know what I mean by that? That champion, think about David and Goliath, right? Israel and the Philistines are in this epic battle and they said, well, why, why do we have to fight and kill everyone? Why not just send one person from each side and let them fight and kill each other? That's a much better way. And so the armies agreed and voted and said, let's do that. So the Philistines, they sent the giant Goliath, all nine feet of him. He was their champion. He was the one that was going to fight on behalf of all the Philistines. And what did he do? He taunted Israel day in, day out. Just totally trash-talked him, ripped him to shreds, said, where is your God? Is no one mighty enough? Are you a bunch of wimps? Are you a bunch of weaklings? Who will dare challenge me? I guess no one is. You're a bunch of wimps. And I'm pretty sure it wasn't that clean. So day in, day out, Israel had to come face to face with their own shame, their own insecurities. They were completely emasculated day in, day out. Until along comes David, and David says, I will be your champion. I will fight on your behalf against this giant. And so David fought in place of all of Israel. Well, that's a picture of what Jesus has done for you and I. See, on that cross, Jesus was our champion, and He fought against death. He fought against sin. He fought against shame. He fought about against everything that holds you and I in bondage, and He overcame it. If there's one thing that you get from this message this morning, I pray it's this: that it wasn't when you got your act together, or when you showed some promise or commitment to God, that then God decided to act. Instead, it's while we were helpless, while we were ungodly, while we were yet sinners, while we were in bondage to sin and death and shame, Jesus comes to our rescue and fights a battle that we could never win on our own. It's a victory and a battle that he overcame 2,000 years ago on that cross, and he's willing to fight for you and I today as we trust him. As we rely on his power, he will set us free because the truth is we still remain helpless against sin. We can't do it, but he can. See, the result of all this is Jesus has changed everything about who you and I are now. Because he has conquered death, death no longer has a hold on you and I. Because his resurrection life overcomes it. Because he has conquered sin, sin no longer has hold of you and I. Romans 6 and 7 says, he who has died has been set free from sin. And the truth of the matter is, you and I were crucified with Christ. We were buried and raised up as new people. That cross on Calvary wasn't just Jesus' cross, it was our cross too. And we've been set free from sin. We've been set free from shame. We're no longer sinners. Remember, he says, while we were sinners... That implies a change has taken place, that you were something, but no longer. Something is different now. You were a sinner, but because of your death, burial, and resurrection with Jesus, because of what Jesus has done on the cross, what you and I could not do, you're now a saint. Yeah, you still sometimes sin, but that doesn't change the fact that you're a saint. You are now a holy one. And because we're born again as holy saints, we're now able to house the life of the Lord Jesus himself. The reason you and I have access to God anywhere, anytime, is because you take him wherever you go. You are now the permanent residence of the Holy Spirit, the temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. And because of that, this life that has come, not just to live in you, but to now also live through you to be expressed through you to one another, because of that, we're no longer helpless. We're no longer victims to sin and to death, because in Christ, he has overcome all that. And he is available to you and I today to overcome that in your lives. He's risen. He's not suffering anymore. He only had to suffer one time. And in that one sacrifice, that one suffering, he conquered all of sin and shame, and he set us free. And now he says, it's yours. Grab hold of it. Grab my hand. Take it. I've paid the price already so that I can offer it to you freely. One time when Paul was preaching in a synagogue, he He was sharing the gospel, and he had talked all about what God had done and how he was there for them, and he he summed it up this way, and I think it's a great response for for you and I. He says, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. It's offered. It's done. And through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, that it's a justification, a freedom that you were not able to obtain on your own under the law of Moses. But because you're helpless, I've done it, Jesus says. All you need to do is grab hold of it. Well this morning we thought a great way to experience that is to receive communion. And we're gonna have the kids come on in and join us because we wanted the kids to be a part of this. And I want you to know if you've if you've never accepted this gift from Jesus. If this is maybe you've heard some of it or if it's if it's never heard it in this way, but but now you're beginning to see all that Jesus has offered to you. Then I want you to know that it's here. Grab hold of His hand, and and you can pray with us, and we'll talk to you about that, what that means. But maybe what be a great way to start is what is communion, and we've been we've been longing to do this here, but we're we're kind of had to wait because we're not supposed to have any kind of food or drink in the gym, and uh, but fortunately the the people here at the school are great, and they're they're welcoming us here. And they're allowing us to do this now. And so we're going to celebrate communion as a church. And we're really excited about this, because what communion is a picture of? Communion is really, it's a celebration of a covenant. It's a, it's a covenant that, that Jesus, who is our champion, made with God on our behalf. It's a covenant where where we are now the benefactors of all that Jesus has done for you and I. And so so Jesus says about communion, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Remember what happened 2,000 years ago. Remember it in your lives today. Because the victory that he has won, he has purchased for you and I, that has overcome sin and shame and death and guilt and whatever you're struggling with, Remember it for right now, because it is present for you and I. And it's not when you get your act together that you will experience the grace and power of God. It's when you are most helpless, so weak, that God's strength shows up best. So I invite Greg to come on up here, and, and we're going to have the privilege of offering you guys communion. What I'm going to suggest to you guys is we do communion as a family, meaning you can come up in your own families. And um, some of you, maybe this is new for you. I, I grew up in a, in, a, in a church where communion was always celebrated in these little thumbnails sort of things, little thimbles of, of grape juice and little bits of, of bread and so forth. And uh, I always blame the church in Corinth because apparently they're getting drunk on it. So they figure if we give you a shot glass, you can't get drunk on it. So we're going to do a little bit differently here. Um, we've got the, the goblet full of grape juice here and we got some bread and we've we got gluten-free crackers for those that need it that way. But I want you to come up as a family and maybe we can serve communion to you as a family. And, and if you're here alone, then, then find a family because we're all part of a larger family. Don't come up alone and just come on up as you're led. And, uh, and we're going to celebrate communion and all that Jesus has done on our behalf as our champion. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise your name. We thank you for all that you've done on our behalf and and how you've redeemed us, how you have conquered sin and death and shame on our behalf because we couldn't. And so, Father, we're reminded again of the beauty of this covenant, of all that you've done on our behalf. We praise your name. We glorify you, the one who is deserving of all praise and all things. In your name we pray, amen.